goes to sleep, he wakes up the very next day, and it's the same day as it was before. It's Groundhog Day. Now, for the Israelites, it's not as so much as that they keep reliving the same day over and over again, but rather they're living the same sinful cycle over and over again. It's a cycle that we've become quite familiar with. If you've been along with us in our lesson, uh, verse 1 should sound pretty familiar. Notice verse 1. It says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Sound, Sound familiar? Right, right. So it, it begins with the people rebelling against God. The Bible says that they did. Again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That means that they begin to worship false gods. And how does God respond to that? Not very well. And in his righteous anger, he, he, he delivers them over to their enemies' hands to be oppressed, right? And so that's what we see right here. Now, if anything has changed at all, and not much has changed, the only thing that's really changed is the intensity of the suffering of God's people. If you haven't noticed, when each judge comes and then the next rises up, every time the people sin all the more, they suffer all of the more. And so there's an even greater emphasis on the the extent of suffering here. And one of the ways we know that is the amount of space that the author gives us is to describe what exactly... But anyway, so I have no idea where I was, except for the fact that the people were suffering. And so uh, in chapter 6, they're actually suffering greater than they were back in chapter... uh, I can't stop laughing back in chapter 4. And we read specifically about their suffering, verses 2 through 6. It's laid out there. We find out that they were suffering at the hands of the Midianites and the Amalekites. Now, these enemies, they weren't so interested in controlling the people politically as much as they were in just exploiting them for everything they were worth. In these opening verses, what we find is that right around harvest time, they would, the enemies would come in and they would just begin to consume all of the crops. They would take everything at harvest time. Uh, they would take their animals. They would take their crops. And, and the Bible explains it kind of like this in verse 4. It says that they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. So nothing was left. And what we find is that this siege was so violent that it sent God's people, the Israelites, up into the hills where they began to live for a period of time. They would live in the cliffs and they would, they, they would live in the caves and in, in fear. Then finally, when their enemies go away, they would trickle back into their cities, into their towns, where they would literally be on the edge of starvation. There would be nothing left for them to eat. And this would go on year after year after year. The scriptures say it happened for seven straight years. Well, listen, that happens once. That's enough. Seven, seven times you, you, you get sick of that. So they finally get to the point that they cry out to God. Verse 6 says, Israel cried out for the Lord or to, for help uh, to the Lord. All right. So here's the thing we see the first three steps, right? The people sin against God, they rebel against Him. Second step, God turns them over to be oppressed by their enemies. Third step, they call out to God for mercy. So because of those three steps, we're expecting the last step. What is that? That God raises up a deliverer and rescues his people. That's what we're expecting to happen. But in verse 7, we're surprised because that's not what happens. Actually, something completely different. Notice verse 7. It says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people 
of Israel. Now, that's a little strange, right? Here they are militarily suffering, physically suffering. They need another sword of Ehud. They need uh, another, another ox goad. They need a military man to come and to be able to rescue from their enemy. The last thing anybody needs is a preacher, right? I mean, that's, that's the last thing that they need. It, it would be like this, say... And, and I want to be careful with this. I just heard that somebody's family ha- had a fire. So I, don't, I, don't mean, I hate when my illustrations clash with what's actually going on. Uh, but but what, it, it would be as though your house was on fire. And, and you don't want your house to burn. Everything that's in it, you, everything, all your garbage is in there that you treasure so much, right? And you don't want it to burn. And so what do you do? You call 911. You pick up 911, you call them, and you say, hey, listen, uh, I, I need help. You, you don't explain, I need a couple of fire trucks, a ladder truck. You don't do that. You just say, my house is on fire, help. You're hoping that the person that you're confiding in, that you're calling out to, is going to know what your need is and send the correct help, right? And so, so what would happen is if you're waiting for the fire department to come, and, and instead of the fire department, I show up. Okay, so it's a red truck, but it's my little red pickup truck. And I show up, and, and I get out, and I don't have any fire equipment. Instead, I get out, and I'm carrying my Bible with me. And I'm like, listen, um, uh, I know your house is burning down, but I want to open up. I want you to open up to the book of Judges, chapter 6, just for a minute. We're going to have a little church service. You would, you would probably be kind of angry, all right? You'd be confused. You'd be a little bit angry. you think, this is not the time, Pastor Mike, all right? It's barely the time on Sunday. It's definitely not the time right now for you to be preaching. So the question is, why does God, when they call out for a deliverer, why does God think that it's appropriate for him to send a prophet? Well, let's get a couple things settled real quick. First thing I think we could all agree on is that none of us like suffering. Yeah, I mean, could we all at least agree on that? And when we're suffering, we only think about one thing. What is it? How we can escape the suffering. We want the suffering to be able to come to an end. But God, they call out, they want him to end it, but God is allowing them to continue in a state of suffering because he wants to teach them something. This has gone on long enough. He wants to teach them why it is that they keep finding themselves in the same place over and over again. See, it, it seems to be unloving for God to send a preacher when they need a deliverer, but it's actually an incredible act of love on God's part because what he wants to do is he wants to get through that thick head of theirs and that thick head of ours of why it is that they keep finding themselves falling into this state suffering. If they can get it and understand why it's happening, maybe, just maybe, they'll correct their course and, and maybe they'll be rescued from future and even greater suffering to come. So it's very loving. I, I love the way that Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on Judges, he writes this. He says, one of the kindest things that God can do for us is to bring us under the criticism of his word, to expose the reasons for our helplessness and our misery. He does this by the preaching counsel or reading of the word of God. Now, I think we could all admit that when we've blown it and we suffer because of our own sin, any, anybody ever been there? You, sin, you, you suffer because of your own sinful decisions that you made. The last thing we really want is somebody to come and preach to us and let us know what it was that we had done wrong, all right? We, we don't want that. We don't want to hear that. Uh, uh, if you come to a church, people don't like to come to a church that preaches the word and where you're convicted. Why? They know they're doing what is wrong and they don't want to be reminded of it. But here's what the scriptures tell us. It's actually the most loving thing God can do. 
If God can get through to us and show us the error of our way, he's doing it in order to be able to rescue us from further pain and further suffering. And so here's the idea. God wants them to understand what the problem is. What, what is the problem? Why do these keep, people keep repeating the same cycle over and over? What, what's going on here? Well, stop and think about it for a moment. I, I think we, we know the problem when we sit back and, and we remember uh, that every time they call out to God, uh, what they're really doing is they're, they're, they're just simply asking God to deliver them from suffering itself. In other words, what they're doing is they're expressing regret, but they're not expressing true repentance. Regret not repentance. And this is what I want to focus on here. You say, but is there really that big of a difference between feeling regret over our sin and actually being truly repentant over our sin? And I would say, yeah, there is a huge difference between those two things. In fact, it's a matter of life and death. See, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret Whereas worldly grief, that's that regret that we're talking about that they keep doing, produces death. Huge difference between the two. So what I want to do, look, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, but I just want to take a little snapshot, not the whole chapter, just a little piece, because I thought that this was so essential for us. I think it's essential for us to know that there is clearly a difference between regret and repentance. First of all, it's important for each of us to know what is it that we're doing. When we sin and we're caught or we paid the consequences, what's really going on there? Are we just regretful or are we actually acting as the Bible says and we're actually leading in true biblical repentance to be restored unto God? It's important for us. But let me say, I think it's incredibly important for our culture in which we live in which God has called us. We live in the South where uh, easy believism reigns supreme, does it not? I mean, it's, it's a place where people believe that they're born again simply because they believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he was from God, that he's fully God, fully man, he was born of a virgin, that he, he died for the sins of the world, and he raised on the third day. Look, that's important stuff to know and believe. But simply having a cognitive understanding of those things doesn't make somebody born again. Do uh, you guys get that? Uh, in other words, James says it this way. He says, you say that you believe he says, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble under the truth that it is that you believe. So it's possible to believe cognitively all the right things. But, but what happens in our southern culture, what we forget about is true belief is demonstrated not in just what you understand, but it's demonstrated in repentance. The Bible says to believe and repent it's, 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 it's two sides of the same coin. It's the turning from sin and self to God. So that's why this idea of repentance is so important. I think that there are a lot of people in churches today who have felt a great deal of grief, a great deal of regret over sin, maybe even some of you today, but they haven't entered into saving faith because they've never truly repented. Before God. So what is the difference? Are you all tracking with me so far? So, so what is the difference between these two things? Let me, let me just give you two things. First of all, I think there's a difference in one's sorrow. There's a difference in one's sorrow. Both repentance and regret are marked by a, a, a great um, sorrow, but they experience sorrow for two different reasons. For example, when somebody is, regrets their sin, it's not so much that their hearts are broken because of their sin, but rather because of the consequences of the sin. That's why they're feeling regret, because they got caught or because they're suffering for what they ultimately did. In fact, if there was no suffering at all, there would be no sorrow over sin 
at all. It's just the suffering because of the consequences of sin that really causes their hearts to break. Are you tracking with me? This is what we've seen with the Israelites so far. Um, when, 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 when they call out to God for mercy, they're not calling out to him because they're broken over their sin before God. They're, they're, they're calling out to God because they want to be delivered from the pain that they're in, that their sin has ultimately caused. It has nothing to do with the sin. Well, true repentance is completely different. Uh, when somebody enters into true repentance, it's, it, it, they experience sorrow, but it's not so much caused by the suffering or the consequences of their sin itself. Now, it's not as though they enjoy suffering. Uh, they don't want to be in suffering just like nobody else wants to be in suffering. They, they don't enjoy it. They don't want to be a part of it. But there is a part of the true repentant heart that at least sees that suffering, and at least they say in their, their heart, God, I'm truly deserving of the suffering. I mean, I've sinned, God, and, 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 and this is really the result, and, and I'm deserving of what's happening in my life. But here's the idea. The, the, the sorrow is not derived or by the consequences of their sin. That's not what makes them sad. What, what grieves their heart is the sin itself. What, what grieves their heart is because they understand what's going on is that they have sinned against God, that, that they've grieved God, that they've broken fellowship with their God. Do you see that? Uh, let me say it this way. Uh, regret is always about me. It's always about us, okay? Uh, we're caught in sin. We're suffering because of our sin. It's always about what I've lost. It's always about my pain. It's always about my trouble. It's always about my hopelessness. When somebody is truly repentant, it's always about the fact that, you, that I've sinned against God and, and that he's been grieved because of my sin and that, that in light of all of his goodness, um, I've sinned against him. He's been good to me, and I've been disobedient uh, to him. And so, really, I guess a way to say it is, regret really deals with the horizontal. You're, you're really, you're really, your sorrows stem from the outcome of what your sin has ultimately done. But true Christian repentance, true biblical repentance, the sorrow really delves from what's happening vertically, what, what's happening between you and God in a relationship between you and God. Um, so, so what happens here is the people have to be reminded of that. They've got to get their eyes off the horizontal, and they've got to get their eyes on the vertical to see what's truly going on so that they would come to a place of true repentance for, for, before God. And so that's what the prophet does. Look at verse 8. It says, And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Do you see what he's doing? He, he's, he's, he's bringing them to the goodness of God. He's reminding them of, of God, that all of God's goodness, that he delivered them, he rescued them from slavery, that he gave them a land, he gave them life. Every, every good and perfect gift has come from God himself. And then he says, in light of that, here's what you've done. You have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed God. Do you see how they're taking it off this and, and bringing it back this way? It's what true repentance is. If, if they can't understand, if they can't come to understand what they've done to God and, and, and don't experience true heartfelt sorrow over their sin because of how it affects them with God, then salvation is impossible. True salvation is impossible. That cycle will always continue. Uh, understand? Let me, let me give you an example. Maybe this will help. Several years ago, I had a gentleman uh, come into my office, and uh, he was clearly shaken, clearly broken. And as he came in, he said, he said, Pastor Mike, he says, 
Um, he goes, man, I got to share something with you, man. He goes, I sinned and began to tell me about how he had sinned. And he says, and now I'm so fearful. I'm so fearful that because of what I did, that now I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose my wife. She's going to divorce, divorce me. I'm going to lose my kids. They're not going to love me. That I'm going to lose my business because of this. I'm going to lose my home. I'm, I'm going to lose everything there is that I can possibly lose. And, and he taught probably for 20 to 25 minutes just about all that he was going to lose, the consequence of his sin is what he was so fearful of. And I understood that the reason he's coming to me is because he doesn't want to experience the consequence. He's scared of the consequence. Does that make sense? So he's calling out to God just like the Israelites. And so as I began to talk with him, I just kind of simply said to him, I said, hey, uh, brother, I said, my heart is grieved for you. I, I don't want to see your marriage fall apart or your family or, or your business. I don't want to see any of that. But what I'm, I'm grieved for something far more than the loss of your wife, than the loss of your family, than the loss of your business. What really truly grieves me is the fact that you're not truly grieving for the right reason. I said, not in 20, 25 minutes have you ever mentioned the fact that you've sinned against God. Your, your heart is not broken that you've sinned against God, your, your creator. You, 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 no concern over grieving God. Nothing, nothing mentioned of that at all. That's what concerns me. Most of all. Now, here's what's so wonderful is he sat there and he said, I never thought of that. And, and I said, yeah, when you've come in, the only thought of God that you had was rescuing you out of this. You had no thought of God and, and your need to truly repent before him because you've broken his heart in your sin. And so he left that day. And here's what's wonderful. He's driving around that same day. And the Holy Spirit takes that truth and he drives it into his heart. And he begins to become overwhelmed with remorse and sorrow because he has sinned against God. And he cries out for the mercy of God, and God saves him. And to this day, he's still walking. God restored his marriage, restored his family, restored everything. And, and, and he walks every day in faith in God. Do you see that? Do you see the two difference between those? Difference in sorrow. One's the consequence of sin. The other is sin itself and how it relates to the God who created us and loves us. There's this second thing. Look at that. We're in the second point. We're almost done. Is it amazing? What amazing sermon. Um, when they're quick, they're just good. I don't care what they say. All right, so second thing. There's a difference in their sorrow. The second thing that we see is that there's a difference in one's future. And there's two specific differences here. The first one is there's a difference for their future sorrow. When somebody experiences regret because of their sin, that is that they're experiencing sorrow because of the consequences of their sin, not because of sin at all. You, you got that, right? When they experience that, they are going to continue to suffer. Their suffering is going to go long into the future. It's going to follow them everywhere they go. You say, why is that? Because their love for what they lost as an outcome of their sin is often so great that when they lose it, they are sometimes inconsolable. There are people that I have known throughout ministry that they have lost something as a consequence of their sin. And no matter what I've tried to teach them, tell them, bring up the word, even the scriptures that we know that are, are meant by the author himself, by the Holy Spirit himself, to affirm our hearts and to encourage us, nothing would encourage them. Uh, they, they, were, they, were, they, they, they could not be consoled. They, they, no matter what you said, no matter how much you reminded them of the love of God, no matter how much you reminded them of the grace of God and the restoring act of God, they continued to weep and to mourn. Why is it? Because it exposed their idolatrous heart. 
Because what it ultimately showed is the reason that they were so incredibly sad was because um, whatever it was that they lost, the relationship, the, uh, the, the occupation, the money, that whatever it was that they lost was actually the thing that they worshiped. It was actually their God that they feel like they've lost. And so what happens is because they've lost it, they don't, sometimes they don't even feel like life is worth living. I've lost what was so precious to me, what was so important to me. I've lost really my false God. I can't go on anymore. But for somebody who's truly experienced repentance, have you ever noticed that they don't walk in regret of the past? They walk in the future with hope and joy? Why is that? Because they have no remembrance of their sin? No, they, they remember they, they wish they could go back and, and, and redo it. They don't want to live in that sin. They know the evidence of what it's done. You say, then why can they live in joy? Because when, when we take part in true repentance and realize that we, are for, that, that we are forgiven and our relationship with God has been restored, we're able to move on with life because, listen, because we realize that whatever it was that we lost because of our sin pales in comparison to the value of what we haven't lost that is a relationship with Christ and Christ himself. So even in that repentance, when it's true repentance, we may have lost everything. We may have lost a spouse. We may have lost a family, all because of the sin that we have committed. We may have lost a ton, but there's still joy for the believer that is able to come forth. Why? Because of that which brings us our greatest joy, that which we love the most, Jesus Christ is still there. He's still there. Are you, does that do anything for your heart at all? It, it, it does for mine. It certainly does for Paul. I think Paul in Philippians 3.8, and I think in the context, he means something a little bit different, but I think it applies here. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, even what I've lost because of my sin. It's just rubbish compared to knowing Christ and what I have in him. It's a beautiful picture. So we see that there's a future sorrow, and that's different. For one, it's sorrow. For the one who's truly repentant, it's joy. Uh, But there's also a difference in future action. For the person who merely lives in regret, mark my words, they will revisit this sin again. They're going to take part and come back to those sinful deeds and those sinful actions again. Why? Because the only thing that's restraining them is, is the suffering. Once the suffering is gone, they go right back to the sinful act again, hoping that this time they won't suffer for what they're ultimately doing, right? I mean, you, you've see, we see it with our kids. What did you do? I'm really sorry. Why? Because you got caught. And, and if they can get away with it another way, they're going to ultimately do it. This is what we've seen with the Israelites all the way through the book. We've seen that each and every time that after God has delivered them from their suffering, it's not long before they begin to do what? Sin again and do what is wicked in the sight of God again. Why? It's not true repentance. It's regret. For the, for, for the person who experiences true repentance, their life changes. The direction of their life changes. Did, did you hear that? This is essential to the gospel. This is essential to our message to a lost and dying world. Repentance, the turning of direction is essential, not just easy believism. There has to be a change in direction, a change in living, a change in action. Now, there's two different types, I think, of of repentance. The Bible really doesn't divide it up this way, but I think it helps us to, 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 to understand it. There's a general repentance that we take part in when we're born again, right? So, so when we come to faith in Christ, when we hear the gospel, when we hear that we're sinners and the Holy Spirit uses the word to convict our heart with the, with the Holy Spirit, you guys tracking with me? And, and we're sinful, 
then what we do is we repent from our sin. We notice that we've sinned in the past. And all of a sudden, because of the regenerative work that God does in our heart, we don't want to go back there anymore. Anybody anybody with me? I I don't want to go back there anymore. I don't want to be with that sin. So I turn, and instead of pursuing myself and my flesh and my desires, I now pursue my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a general repentance that is necessary for salvation. You guys with me? Guys, so important in the gospel, so important in raising your kids to to teach them the necessity of that. we're We're not preaching a works-based salvation. What we're saying is when God truly saves you, your life is radically changed, amen? And so there has to be that repentance. So there's a general repentance, but then there is, as a believer, and I think you would agree, that there is a continual repentance as a believer in Jesus Christ. Would you admit that? There's general, but then God begins to show you different areas of your life that you had no idea was even sin. You're like, really, that's sin? I can't believe that. So he exposes that to you. He begins to convict for you. What do you have to do? Repent. Now, you're, you're still a child of God, but you've got to repent. And what is that repenting doing? It's turning from sin and self and turning even more to faith in God. It's submitting to him. So we see these two kind of, uh, well, it's, it's, it's not clear in the word, but, but you understand that, right? I'm not trying to be uh, uh, outside of scripture, but I think that that's a general way of being able to ultimately conceive that and understand that. Let me tell you what I think a big problem is. When it comes to this repentance, and this is where I got kind of caught up, I think it's very hard to tell sometimes whether a Christian is truly repentant or whether he is just regretful. And I mean somebody who's pursuing Jesus. Because the truth is, is that when we're following Christ, every single one of us have certain areas of life that we struggle with in particular areas of sin. Will we all admit that? I mean, I struggle with them all, just so you know, but I know for some of you are so godly, just a few of them you struggle with. But, but you understand what I mean. And in growing in Christ, there is a natural falling, getting up, falling, getting up, falling, getting up. In other words, you repent of the sin, but then soon after, because it's such a great sin in your life and it has a foothold, you fall again. And then you get up and you repent and you fall again. And you get up and repent and you fall again and you get up and repent. That is a natural part of the Christian life. Sometimes... That's hard to distinguish somebody who just hasn't truly repented from their sin at all. They keep sinning, saying they're sorry, sinning, saying they're sorry, sinning, they're saying they're sorry. But the truth is, they've never truly repented from God. Do you see why that's a little bit confusing? You're like, yeah, I don't understand a word you just said. Let me, let me try to clear it up with Tim Keller because he says this and everything else better than I ever say it. So let me, let me say this. He writes... We need to discern, listen very carefully, we need to discern in ourselves the difference between the moral lapses on the road to increasing Christian maturity. See that? As we're trying to mature, we're we're struggling and there are consistent moral lapses as we're trying to become more like Christ. You, You with me? He says to distinguish that and then getting stuck. He says, a, a repeated pattern of lapses, which is a sign of no progress, if you're continually falling into the same spiritual pit and your falls are not decreasing in number or intensity, then you may be responding in regret rather than true repentance. Does make, is, that, is that clear? I hope it is. So here, here are the questions before we come to Lord's Supper. A couple questions for you. Have you truly repented before God? Or is it just an aspect of regret 
that you have of your sin? Which, which, which one of those is that? And, and I mean, first of all, overall, for, for, for coming to faith in Christ, I know this truth. I know that there were people here this morning, and there's bound to be people here at night who, who came, and they're living under regret of their sin. That is, they, they feel bad, they, they, their marriage is broken up, and they're just coming back to the church. They're just coming to the church service because they want God to stop, stop the pain, stop the suffering, Right? That's the only reason they're there. They're really no kind of concept that they've sinned against a holy God. They just want rescuing. That's, that's it. And, and so my question is, is, is that you? Or have you actually felt the weight of your sin against your creator God? Let me ask you this. Do you, do you feel sorrow because of the consequences of your sin? Or, 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 or because of the sin itself? Do you experience, here, here's another question, do you experience continual sorrow for what you have lost in the past, or do you experience joy now knowing what you have in Jesus Christ? See, even as true regenerate believers, we can still slip into that regret versus true repentance, we, right? We, we can do that. We, we're like, oh man, I did this, I, I got caught, I feel bad, I'm suffering for it. But, but again, is, have you come back to the idea that it's, it's not just this sorrow because of what I lost back there, but whatever it is that you lost, right now you have joy because you still have Jesus. Is that a reality in your life? Do you find yourself going back to the same sin after, after, uh, 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 after the consequences are over, or have you changed the direction of your life? Now, I think the biggest trouble that we have, and, and I'll sum it with this, is for this to sound like one of those do-better preaching messages that everybody loves. I mean, it's, it's like, I wish people would understand this. They love, ding, thank you, I'll shut that off next time. Um, um, uh, they love, people love to go to churches where people, where pastors preach do-better preaching. Do you, do you know what that is? You're not doing this, you're not doing that, you're not doing whatever, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do whatever. And everybody leaves and like, man, you just messed up my toes in there, man. You just bashed me in the face. I'm gonna do better when I leave this place. And what happens is, uh, it, it sounds really good, but it's really anti-gospel. Okay, now don't get me wrong. I don't mean about sending the truth and calling for repentance. I'm not calling that. But we're not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and going, okay, I'm going to do better from now on. It's not what it is. What God does is he calls us for more faith in Christ. He calls you to sit back and go, yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've done what is wrong. But God, in my turning, I need you to turn. I need you to give me the desire to turn. I need you to give me the ability and the faith to be able to turn. And God is in it the whole time. Here, here's what I think is really beautiful. Is some of you, maybe God has been working in your heart. Maybe, maybe you're lost. I don't, I don't know what it is. And, and today's the first day that you sat there and you go, you know what? I really, truly need to repent. I think I've been living with regret, but no true repentance in my life. Here's, here's the astounding thing. It's, it's not you that just decides that you're going to turn and do this. There's been a God who has been working behind the scenes to bring you to this point, okay? Here, here's, here's where we see it. In the book of Judges, I think it's a beautiful picture. Every time that they have called out to God so far in the first six chapters, was it ever true repentance? No, not even in chapter six. What is it? Regret. Get me out of the difficulty. But did you notice that the gracious God begins to call a deliverer before them to deliver them before they ever truly come to repentance? Did you notice that? L listen, just look this way. It's important for you to get this, all right? 
I know doors are really interesting, all right? But understand this, God was so great. It, it, we often think, well, when I'm turned, then that's when God is going to meet me. Then that, no, God has been working behind the scenes, drawing you and calling you and equipping you and doing a saving work in you in order for you ever to come to the point where you're going to ultimately turn. One of my favorite verses in all the scripture is this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if we all repent in here, which I pray that we will, even for salvation or even for the different sin that we're struggling with right now, we, we all repent. It's not we go out and go, let me tell you what I did and the decision that I made. What happens is we walk out and we go, what a mighty God we serve because I repented, but it was only based on the sovereign, gracious work of God in my life. And he gets all the glory. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you and we, we thank you and we love you.